Let us pray. Almighty God, we thank you that you come running to us when we've wandered far, that you bring us back home, that you come out to us when we're angry or full of sin. Guide us, direct us, and help us to show grace to one another, that in your love we may grow stronger. And let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. This morning, as I was doing the final edits on my sermon, I realized, I thought at first that it had been 20 years, but it turns out I'm getting worse at math every year, but that it had been 19 years since I met Jesus for the first time. I met him in the pits of my depression and loneliness and lostness as I ask the question, what is true? My walk with him has been far from perfect. I remembered, it's reminded, it seems almost daily, of my sins. And I fear that more of my time has been marred by sin and selfishness than by a genuine desire to burn for Christ. But I remember meeting him, diving in deep, falling in love in a deep and joy-filled way, and I pray that my walk with him today is deeper than it was yesterday. And I pray the same for each and every one of you. Today we learn some more about the two lost brothers. The one who had wandered from his father and come home to a grace that I think we find hard to even imagine. The other had always been at the breast of his father, and yet he still held on to his own sin. Chances are, there have been times that we've been one or the other brothers, but in all likelihood throughout our lives, both of them at different times. Times when we've wandered far into that far country, dived deeply into sin and squandered those gifts that we've been given. And other times when we've wanted to judge harshly the lives of sinners who return home to our Father's love. As I survey the last 19 or so years, I know that I have been the older and the younger brother. And yet, I am glad that I have a father who comes out to me, who has tenderly brought me back to his household more often than I can imagine or deserve. And I am glad that I have a father who cares so deeply for his sons and daughters that he comes to us in the darkness of our sins and walks us back into right fellowship with him and his whole church. Last week, we talked about an arrogant young man, a young man who cared little for the honor of his family, but who cared only for what he wanted. We heard of how he went off and squandered all of his money, squandered the wealth that his family had worked so hard to accumulate, and then when he became completely destitute, he slinked back to his father and wanted simply to be a servant for him. But the father welcomed him back with open arms, welcomed him back not as his servant, but as his son. We learn of how this is an analogy for how God welcomes us into his family, into the church. We learn how it was an analogy for how God brings us in and makes us his children. 
when we barely feel worthy of being his servants, how he clothes us with the perfect garment of Christ, and how through Christ we gain the inheritance of his glory. We learn that through Christ we experience the glory of God. And last week, as I told this story as an illustration for how we are adopted, I'm sure many of you recognized it, even though it was simply a paraphrase. And perhaps some of you wondered, wait, wait, you left off the end of the story. And I did so, intentionally. Although the end of the story is important, we didn't need to hear about the older brother last week. But I hope that we now have a sure understanding of our adoption through Christ. Our understand undeserved love, which we So now, let us take a look at that second story. Almost all of us know what this story is called. And most translations have those handy little headings at the top of each section. And as I surveyed them this week, I found a few common themes. One read, simply, the prodigal son. Another read, the parable of the lost son. Our few Bibles, when we have them out, read the parable of the prodigal son, sort of combining the two. But a professor of mine proposed a different title, a title that I think is more fitting and better for this story, and that is the parable of the two lost sons. For this story is not the story of only one lost son who went off and squandered his riches, but two who are lost in very, very different ways. The younger son's lostness is obvious. It was blatant and deeply, deeply painful. The older son's lostness was more subtle and perhaps more acceptable. But if we think about it, he was lost as well. The first lost son is like us when we turn our back on God completely, when we dive deeply into sin and we forget the admonishments of St. Paul, which we heard last week, not live according to the flesh. Perhaps some of you have been so blessed to have walked with Christ since you were a tender age. Perhaps some of you do not even remember a time when you weren't walking with the Lord. And that, my friends, is a beautiful, beautiful thing. But my friends, here's the thing. If you've been with God for your whole life, This temptation is what the temptation which the old the Pharisees fell into. They lived good lives. At least on the surface, they were good men. But they were also self-righteous and arrogant. They could not understand how Jesus could have compassion on such horrible, horrible people. So if we have been in the church for any amount of time, we must check our against this attitude of the older brother. Even those of us who came, walked in the world and came to know Jesus later in life can fall into that same temptation and look down on new converts. For certainly, once we are in the church, once we are resting sweetly in Christ, it is easy and tempting to think, 
How could that sinner ever find repentance? And we must be careful of this spirit of skepticism. This spirit that thinks, I remember how terrible she was. There's no way that Jesus could ever love someone such as her. Her repentance must be conjured up. She must just want something. Let us take a look at another story to encourage us, to help us back from this temptation. It is the story of the dear saint who taught us last week about adoption. It is the story of St. Paul. Let his conversion enkindle our, in our hearts deep compassion. Let us be filled with optimism that even the person that you struggle the most with to love, the person you know who has wandered the furthest from God, the person whose life seems to be defined by sin and nothing else, let us remember that there is hope even for them. My friends, a genuine interaction with our divine Savior, an interaction on the Damascus Road, as it were, a life can be changed, can be flipped upside down. And in that, they meet the same God, the same Christ that we have walked with for five years, or ten years, or our whole lives. And in that, their lives There is always hope, even for the worst of sinners. We learn of a man in chapter 7 of the Acts of the Apostles named Saul. He stands there after the execution of St. Stephen, the first martyr and one of the first deacons. And St. Luke simply writes of him two things. First, Saul approved of Stephen's execution. And then again, Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. But then we don't hear much of him again until a bit later when he turns his eyes upon another city and makes the intention to head Damascus clear and he gets letters from the synagogue that he could go to that place as well and ravage the Christians that he found there, binding them and bringing them back to Jerusalem. But perhaps we know the story of what happened on that faded road to Damascus. A light from heaven shone around him, and he fell on the ground and heard a voice say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? But Saul did not know where this voice was coming from. I am Jesus, who you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what to do. Now Saul was struck blind and bewildered, but he was obedient and headed to Damascus. And in the city of Damascus, there was a Christian named Ananias. And God told him to rise and go to Saul. But Saul's fame of terror had spread throughout the whole church. If God calls you to love the most terrible person that you could think of, if God calls you to go out to them with the gospel, would you? Would you be like Jonah and run as hard and fast in the opposite direction? Would you be like Ananias and say to the Lord, I know this man and he is evil. 
eldest son and stand outside the house and refuse to go in? My friends, we learn with Saul who turns to Paul that God radically transforms lives. God radically turns hearts around, pulls men and women out of the pits of despair, pulls them out of their sin, puts them on the right track. He turns their faith from Gehenna and turns them to the new Jerusalem, the eternal city where we are invited to dwell with him throughout all of eternity. And this is what he does for Saul, who becomes our dear St. Paul. He took his life and turned it around. We know that Ananias was obedient despite his fear. And he cared for Paul, baptized him, and showed him the way. We know that St. Paul would go on to be such a powerful force, not against the church, but for her. We know that he would go on to write some of the most theologically profound epistles to the church, epistles that still form our hearts and minds to this very day. He no longer persecuted the followers of the way. But by the grace of God, through the Holy Spirit, he illuminated the way all the more. Stories like this, whether ancient or modern, encourage and challenge us. They make us ask, are we the little brother? Or are we the big brother? Or are we ready to be the father who welcomes the new brothers and sisters with warm hearts, with joy for their changed lives? The Catholic writer Henry Nouwen wrote a delightful little meditation on this story of the prodigal son. It came about as he surveyed his own life, and he realized that there had been periods that he had, in fact, been the prodigal son. And he knew that it was good to have a father who welcomed him in so warmly. He realized that at other times he had excelled at welcoming those home who had wandered so far and so wide, and he had cared for those precious souls well. But he also noticed that there were times when he failed brutally, that he had been the older brother standing outside the house with arms crossed, angry at the Lord, would ever think of welcoming this sinner in. After all, if God really knew how terrible this person is, Christians is that we love well those with whom we have interacted and that we welcome them into our community, even those whom we find undesirable or scary. It seems as though every generation and every social group has those acceptable sins. It's generally easier to see the what a bunch of hypocrites they are. I'm so glad I'm not like them. And then we give in to our own self-righteousness and look down upon those horrible hypocrites. But the reality is that it's quite likely that we also have our own acceptable sins. There are things that are just easier to love people through and to overlook. As you hear this, does the Lord bring to mind 
any sins that are easier for you to overlook that perhaps you need to confront in your own life? We are all prone to overlook sins, to just pretend that they're character flaws. I know that I tend to do this. And if we start to think about the older brothers, the older brother and his relationship to the little brother, I think we see this. The cultural shame of running off with half of your father's money really hasn't changed a whole lot in 2,000 years. I suspect that if this happened to a friend of ours, we would feel horror and sadness for him. We would feel shame for him. And perhaps if we're honest, we might wonder quietly what he did wrong. But certainly, we would not see, we would see this younger brother's actions as sinful. We would recognize that something terrible had befallen our dear friend. But the older brother was faithful. He was the good son. We would be glad to know that our friend had at least one good son. So what if the older brother was a little arrogant? So what if he had trouble, trouble showing compassion? So what if he didn't go looking for his older brother? We can overlook his negligence because at least he was dutiful to his father. But then his brother returned and his heart was revealed. Let us look at this older brother's response. First, he is angry and refuses to enter the house. We don't get the impression that he's sad or hurt or something else, we get the impression that he burns with anger. I don't know if you've dealt with many angry people, but there's a kind of anger that is almost violent in nature. It is terrifying to experience, and it can cause trauma in people if they experience enough of it over time. The impression is that he burns with this violent anger against both his brother and his father. He must be thinking, how could my father do this to me? How could he welcome back this person who had treated him so poorly and left me alone to do the duties laid before me? Doesn't my father know what he, I put my life on hold? We know that feeling when you're so, so angry. How easy it is to justify it. How easy it is to get wrapped up in that anger with everyone and everything. What would you feel if God welcomes home your worst enemy? If he extends his love to the one who has hurt you so deeply? What if he drives that person to his knees and they cry out with us, Abba, Father, have mercy, save me. Would you burn with compassion for them or jealousy? stand outside angrily stomping your feet and refuse to go in? I know in my own life there have been times when the Lord didn't do what I wanted him to do. There have been times when he said, this is enough. And I thought, no! I want this thing and I want it now and I stomped my feet like a little child and threw myself the most glorious pity party. And this is what we see from the older brother today. He throws himself a glorious, angry pity party. And then we see the heart of the father. Remember his reaction to the son who had wandered? 
to the younger son who squandered all that he had been given. He went out to him. He ran to him. He embraced him. He showed the younger son the inestimable depth of his love. The father goes out to the sinful son. And the father goes out to his second lost son. And entreats him with words of compassion. The father pursues both sons. I cannot think of anything more sweet. The heavenly father pursues his children when we are stuck in our sin, when we are stuck in our stubbornness, when we are stuck in our hard-heartedness, when we are stuck in our lust, our gluttony, and our anger, our Heavenly Father, our Abba Father, comes to us and entreats us. Turn back, O sinner. Come back into the house. Come back into the love which I have for you. Don't stay out in the dark and cold forever. But the older brother responds with self-righteousness. He points out all the good that he has done. And I think we are all prone to do this. Lord, we pray, I want this thing. Look at everything that I have done. Look at all that I do for you. But the point of our good works is not to buy God off. It is not to gain favor in his sight. The point of our good works is to glorify God so that others, even our enemies, might see those works and praise our Father who is in heaven. A friend and I were talking this past week and he made a good point about the nature of sin. very real sense, our sin tarnishes God's glory. The opposite is true when we do good works. We glorify God, and how good it is to live a life spent burning for God's glory. How good it is to live a life that points others not to our own ego, towards our own goodness, but towards how good our God is towards how merciful he is to sinners such as us. May our lives be defined by his goodness and not our selfish ego. And then the brother does something even worse. He responds to the father and says, you're not. I've seen this done jokingly with parents who don't want to deal with disciplining their child at that moment, or couples who don't want to walk, one of, one of them doesn't want to walk the dog. And the wife will say, your son did this terrible thing. Go deal with it to her husband. Or the husband will say, your dog needs a walk. When are you going to do that? And when it is a joke, it's funny and not terribly hurtful. But I suspect that there have been conversations like the one we see accounted for by St. Luke today, <clears throat> where the words aren't meant as humor, but are meant as a knife wound to hurt the other. 
the brother says, your son, not even my obnoxious little brother. He owns no part of that relationship. I hope as we read these words, we hurt. could have been dead 12 hours ago for all he knew is still dead in his mind. He wants nothing to do with him. He can't possibly imagine his father would ever want anything to do with him. And his father still pursues him. If you were the father in this situation, would you pursue the older son? Or would you think, fine, you're being a jerk. You just need to grow up. Would you, th- would you turn in anger and walk away and let your sin- son sit out in the cold? Or let him sulk off to the bar to get drunk? Call up his friends and tell him how horrible you've been, he's been? Or would you calmly assure him of your love for him? My friends, our imperfections show us how we react We so often react irrationally, slam the door in the face of those whom we should reach out to aggressively with compassion. We let our emotions get the best of us, and in return, we return wounds for wounds. But God does not do this. He pursues us. God pursues us in our sin. God pursues us oh so aggressively that the second person of the Trinity gave up his glory and dwelt among us, was crucified to save sinners, to save us. Our dear saint, our persecutor of the church turned church leader, St. Paul writes, have this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equity with God, equality with God to be a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death. Christ gave up his glory to come and to save us. Christ is the good older brother, the older brother who not who seeks out us out as we are lost and brings us to know the Father, who brings us back, brings us home, and is preparing for us a glorious marriage feast for that. We are always with him, and all that he has is ours, and ours is ours. In our adoption, we are brought into this fellowship with Christ. We are made his, and we learn today that we are his made heirs. It is not as though in the kingdom of heaven there is a limited supply of anything. It is not as though if you get more grace, somehow I get less. 
It is not as though if God loves me more, somehow he loves me less. You receiving an abundance of grace and love from God does not mean that somehow I am deprived of his grace and love. No, for all the grace that you enjoy, I get to enjoy it just as much as does your neighbor and even those who do not yet know of his grace. His grace abounds. Our parable this morning leaves us hanging. And of course, it's just Jesus is intentional about it. It is as though he is asking the Pharisees, are you the older brother? Or will you come into the marriage feast with prostitutes and tax collectors and the other desirable ones? And likewise, he asks us, will you run to the lost brother when you see him coming home? Will you welcome home those, even those who have hurt you? Will you leave behind the cold of the night and enter into the warmth of this joy-filled party thrown by the joy-filled Father? In the name of the